Hello, everybody. I'm not Ned Buskirk. I just want to get that out there up front. I also want to say that Ned Buskirk is not dead. He's not even injured or ailing. He's not trapped in a bear trap. In case you heard the sound of somebody else's voice and you thought, oh, no, is Ned trapped in a bear trap? He is not. My name is Nick Jaina. I'm the producer of this podcast, member of You're Going to Die, the organization, I am here today giving the introduction to this podcast because today's interview is with Ned Butts. <laughs> Ned Buskirk. Today's interview is with Ned Bud. But <laughs> normally you would want to edit those things out, and I would be the person to edit those things out as the producer. Um, but I'm going to leave them in just to show how freewheeling and loosey goosey I am. Today's interview is with Ned Buskirk and the podcast Life is a Festival. Uh, this was a interview that was put out on their podcast and we're re-editing it and repurposing it, sanding down some edges and putting on uh, vital introductions like this one to reframe it. It's, it's twice the content and half the work. Actually, I'm doing still the same amount of work, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> And Ned didn't want to do this introduction because it's like, you know, pointing a mirror at a mirror. And we all know what happens when you do that. He didn't want to be talking about himself, introducing himself. So he asked me to give an introduction. And we're doing it because he took this opportunity to tell the whole story of how You're Going to Die came to be. And he goes pretty in-depth explaining the different programs that we do and you know, this podcast is usually Ned opening up a space for other people to talk about their things. And he thought it would be a good opportunity to show people everything that You're Going to Die does. It's funny that I'm doing this introduction because we just had last week the first live You're Going to Die open mic in over two years. Uh, through the whole pandemic, we were not able to. It did not ever line up. It never seemed right to do a live open mic again. And that is to my mind kind of the beating heart of this organization. It's the way that I heard about this organization. It's the place where I met my wife, Chelsea Coleman. Um, it is a, it's a great place to meet potential mates or friends and to share five minutes of confessions, poetry, songs, whatever you have brewing inside of you, roughly around the topic of grief or dying or fears of the world exploding, anything like that. Anyway, that wasn't possible for two whole years. And we just had an event last week in Santa Rosa, California at the Lost Church. I'm not going to say too much about it because I don't want to steal Ned's uh, ability to talk about it. But I just want to give my perspective from the audience because I was sitting in the audience. Um, Ned got up there and... Before he said a word, he got on stage and he just cried for, I would guess, two minutes. And it was great. <laughs> I mean, everybody just 
eased into it and they accepted it and they realized how much they wanted that from a performance. And it, I always think that Ned's tears, especially in the live shows kind of draw a line in the sand and say, I'm willing to be this vulnerable. I'm willing to go there. If you want to join me, come over here. If you want to not participate, that's fine, but I'm doing it right off the top. Like I'm willing to, to be this vulnerable and bear everything. Um, so he did that and I, I won't talk too much. I don't feel like it's my right to talk about things that people shared in that space, even though it was public, but, um, it was really amazing and cathartic. And my favorite thing that happens in at least once in every, you're going to die show, there will be a moment <laughs> there will be a moment where you're thinking, I can't believe this is happening right now. Like I'm here for this unique moment that will never happen again. I can't believe it's happening. And those are my favorite things to happen in performance always. And I'm just so grateful that you're going to die is back. We don't know how long we'll get a window between variants or how many live shows we're going to get to do again, but it was it was great to be back there, and I'm sure next time Ned gets on the mic, he'll share his stories and his tears about that experience. I signed up on the sign-up sheet to talk for one of the segments in the open mic, and you know I go to have gone to most of the shows since I've been aware of them, and I always have this urge to write next to my name on the sign-up sheet. Don't worry if you have to bump me. It's, I can take it. It's okay. If, if, there, if it's too busy and you don't have room for me, like I'll be fine. And, uh, I didn't write that, but that is what ended up happening the other night. There were a lot of people there, a lot of emotions, a lot of people had really potent present things to share. And I always feel like whatever the room wants, whatever the night wants, Ned is really good about just following that feeling of what is needed in this space right now, you know, and not in a personal way, not in a normal like performance way of like what's going to really wow people but like what what is needed and like if we run out of time and they had a curfew that night so we it was a unfortunately shorter time than we, everyone would have wanted so we had to end the show and I didn't get to go up but because I'm here today and I'm talking on this microphone I thought I would share the poem that I wrote that I was going to share the other night and this will now be the place that this poem was meant to go this is something I wrote uh, I teach writing workshops and sometimes I give this prompt to embody an archetype, to just choose an archetype and write from the first person perspective of I am this thing and find all the ways in that you can understand and feel that you are this thing, whatever it is, you know, whether it's a, a sailor or Darth Vader or uh, uh, the Taj Mahal, whatever, like a iconic archetypal object person type of being can be it's a great way to to write a poem and to elevate the language of your poetry so anyway i wrote this poem my birthday is usually around labor day and i wrote this last fall and that's why it's about this subject this is called i am labor day oh and maybe i'll add some sound effects into this maybe like a uh I don't know, like the, the, the squealing brakes of like a BART train as it's coming into the station could be nice. And uh, I don't know, maybe some metal hammering. No, that's going to be too didactic. That's too, too on the nose. Take out the metal hammering. I like the, I like the, the squealing brakes. 
um, chatting, uh, distant crowd, talking. Um, I always love the sound of a symphony orchestra tuning up and kind of fiddling with their instruments. So, yeah. I am Labor Day. A greeting card for the workers as they sit in fluorescent break rooms. I'm a broken part transistor radio stripped of the power of Mayday. 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 Like how all the strongest tools eventually get turned into party games. I am the lineage of protests, of work stoppages, of sit-ins, rubber bullets, and batons. My body ties the knot. To celebrate work, we take a day off. To honor the workers before us, we ride speedboats. And you, what are you even the ruler of if you don't fill your hands with love or jasmine flocks or summer sands in your tiny, tiny hands? You rule over coats that are shoddy, a hill of broken bodies. You rule the fallow fields and spoiled juice. We live in stanzas, we live in truce. In my gut is a still, and in that still is one word narrowed down from a whole book. My parents always told me to secure enough money so I could live safely with central air, plenty of rooms and abundance of everything. My response to that was always, life is better in the margins. And you have to claim your belongings every morning and scoop them into your only home, a tiny palace on wheels. Why have a community when new strangers every night will be so generous and kind? Why root down when you could reinvent yourself every day? And for many years, their advice seemed so wrong. And then the skies lit up with cinders and the hospitals filled up and everywhere felt like a marginal place where you could slip into a trench and die unknown. At my funeral, let them know I wanted just to stand on the same earth, not above, not below. And every twisted phrase I spoke was the most direct path I could see. And sometimes aloofness is a trauma response. As someone once sang, fluorescent light bulbs will make an absence of dark, but the light just ain't there still. Now let's listen to Ned Buskirk, founder of You're Going to Die, in conversation with Eamon Armstrong from the podcast Life is a Festival. You've had a lot of pretty substantial folks on, on the podcast. Yeah, it's been so, so awesome. Because you're like, you're like the death guy. Yeah, well, I don't know that everybody feels that way. I mean, you, you might just because of the way you've known me and that we met in that context, it's hard to, to own that nomenclature. Being the death guy? Yeah. Is this the first time anyone has ever been like, Ned, I think maybe you're the death guy. Well, people for sure have talked about, I know that people think of me that way. It's interesting though, because it's a little more like grief guy. Yeah. Maybe more than ever. Oh, I was gonna, you know, something about grief guy. To be honest, I think I will fail at this podcast today if you don't cry once. Okay. 
Uh, that doesn't feel like a lot of pressure. Well, maybe because I'm so, <laughs> I feel so confident in the likelihood. Well, the th- that's was well, so. But but I, no one's ever declared it at the start of the interview, so we'll see how it goes. Well, your tears are one of the most potent superpowers mm. that you possess. Yeah, I mean, you're you're weeping at you're going to die back in the days of Vera Kocher when we first met. You're weeping moved me profoundly mm. because you know I still hadn't really come to terms with my weeping. I mean I I, I pretty much cry about ex-girlfriends. That's <laughs> I don't you have other death, but that's mainly what you cry about. That's what I cry about. And I, I don't cry that's about real. I don't cry about death. Ned, I've wanted to have you on Life is a Festival since the early days. Yeah, for sure. And even when it was a little bit more about festivals, I was still like, how do I putting that on the show Mm -hmm. because you're the dude who really helped me change my perspective about death. Mm. It was like exactly the time I first started drinking ayahuasca, which Mm -hmm. is the vine of death. Have you done that yet, by the way? I haven't done it. Believe it or not. We're going to do it. Okay. We're going to, we're going to, you can help that happen. You're the death guy. I'm the, I'm the psychedelics it guy. It feels like inevitability, you know, and that it probably should have happened already. But anyway, right around that time, yeah, and they, and 2000 and, 2015, they call it the vine of death, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. But I had just I've been coming that. to terms with death and going to Viracocha, which no longer is an operation, which is a beautiful venue with the kind of underground speakeasy yeah, vibe. There is like, a spot there that's active, but it's not Viracocha anymore. Okay. Well, it was just the warmth of those sort of like Edison light bulbs and the mm-hmm. kind of just the wood of the stage and all of the performances that came through. And But really, to me, the crown jewel of Viracocha was You're Going to Die. Mm. Seriously. Mm-hmm. It was like church. Like, yeah. And we'll talk about all of that today. But I've wanted to have you on the show for a while. And what it really comes down to is this. Life is a festival because... You're going to die. Yeah, totally. Because you're going to die. Yeah, totally. I get that. And we'll talk about that too, the impermanence and the value of impermanence in festival culture and in our own lives. But I've wanted to have you on the show for a while and now you are the first person in two years to sit in my living room. Oh, wow. I've done some others in person kind of on the road, but you're the first person to sit in my living room yeah. to have this conversation. Mm, so with honor. all of that being said, yeah. Ned. All right, thank you. Welcome to... Life is a festival. Thank you. I am so excited to go down all of these corridors with you because you have a certain kind of medicine and it is throughout all of the different work that you do. You have a certain kind of medicine that the world really needs right now, mm. that this show needs, and that I've been hungry for. So it's an honor and thanks for taking the time. Thanks for driving over here. Thanks, buddy. I felt really excited to, I know I texted you this, but I, but to say it here on the record to get to chat with you because you did invite me to be on the show like before the pandemic, I feel like. And um, we, we didn't align and make it happen then. And so to finally get to have this feels really special and then accented by the like being together after so much time. It doesn't feel that way, which... I wouldn't say that about a lot of people, but it's nice to say that about you. So I'm just really glad to be here for lots of reasons, to be able to record in person and sit in your space. I've never even been in your place before. And just the vibe that I'm, the comfort and the like arrival of of this in all those ways. 
feels really good. I don't want to be anywhere else. Mm. Yeah, I'm really happy it's you in this moment. And and you're going to die has launched a podcast, which is part of reconnecting too. Is you know it's great to be in alignment with other podcasters and supporting and yeah. checking in. And so there's also the occasion that we are practicing our craft together. Which there's also that mutuality, which wasn't the case when we first knew each other. We weren't co-producing similar things. No. I was an attendee and a participant as an attendee, but yeah. I was coming to visit your magic, mm-hmm. and now we're sharing magic together, which is yeah. a special thing. Well, it is, and, it, and it's worth sort of articulating from my perspective that I just respect how you're in the world with what you do and, and your work in the festival culture and in community in that way. And... Uh, maybe even back in the day, I guess, like, I can't remember for sure, but I wonder if I just didn't feel like I knew what I could offer into the this context, you know? And so it's meant a lot to hear you articulate the particular invitation for being here. It helps me get to be a part of something that I'm proud of you and all the work you've put into it and all the guests you've had, but also just, like I said, you're traveling the world, you're globetrotting your festival jumping and and also sort of like envious of having a life that lets a person do that and so then get to like get a little you know taste of it just by getting to be with you again and know like all the places you've been that you bring them here like that's a kind of medicine too how you're in the world and what it means to be in other countries and be with other people and that you bring that back to your culture and your community locally. So I'm just feeling really grateful for all that. And I really want to try to to say like why I think my work matters in your context, but I also feel relieved to not need that because of what you just articulated yourself. So anyway, that's all the things. Well, you know, I think for the benefit of our audience, I just want to articulate from my end the actual perfect connection between life as a festival and you're going to die. Okay. Are you familiar with the 10 principles of Burning Man or that there are 10 principles of Burning Man? I would say I'm, I'm vaguely familiar that there are 10 principles of Burning Man. So number 10, which I think it even says in the literature that it's the most important one, that it is the most oh, impactful yes. one of the culture is immediacy. Mm-hmm. And immediacy is accomplished in part by impermanence. I was at Burning Man in 2011, and each year they have a temple. And the temple is your space. You haven't been to Burning Man. No. Yeah. The temple is your space. It's the space of grief. It's the space of endings. And at the end of the week, they burn it. Mm-hmm. And there's the burning of the man, which is the big bombastic party on, on Saturday. And then on Sunday, they burn the temple and it's solemn and quiet. And people have gone to the temple throughout the week and they've written on the temple, on the wood, about people they've lost and grief and letting go. It's your space, my mm-hmm. friend. It's your space. And, mm-hmm. it's, and it has, actually, it's the only other place I've been to that has the same quality as you're going to die, mm-hmm. like that reverence. Mm-hmm. And this particular year, it was... Actually, this was Rites of Passage was the year, and it was called the Temple of Transitions. Mm -hmm. Again, just perfect, right? (laughs) And it was gorgeous. My Mm -hmm. favorite temple they've ever done, Mm -hmm. three beautiful towers. And I was with a friend playing on these bridges between the towers, and I remember being like, they're going to burn this thing. This is my like second year of burning Mm -hmm. them. They're going to burn this. This is gorgeous. It should go in a museum. It should, like, they should put it somewhere. And my friend said, it's gorgeous because they burn it. Mm -hmm. 
it's the fact that it is impermanent mm-hmm. that makes this moment so special, yeah. that makes it so immediate. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's actually every festival. Mm-hmm. It's a temporary experience of potential being experiments in community, Mm. it's temporary. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's temporary heightens the immediacy, heightens the experience, heightens the connectivity, and then it's done, and there's a grieving that it's done, but then there's another festival. And to me, that's life. Yeah. If we lived forever, this place would be boring and crowded. But the fact of death creates the potency of life. That's the paradox, Mm -hmm. and a beautiful paradox. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about life is a festival in the context of death. There's Dia de Muertos, which I did that podcast with Claudia, mm-hmm. which, you know, that's one kind of touch point. Mm-hmm. There are other kind of festivals of, of passing, you know, like a jazz funeral or like a Balinese cremation mm-hmm. festival. But really for me, what it fundamentally comes down to is it's not immediate if it's not impermanent. Mm-hmm. Death implies life, life implies death. Mm-hmm. And the Grim Reaper has a bad rap because yeah. we need this. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's the connection. And you were saying that not being yoked to a connection, that you wanted to share a connection yourself. Well, I don't know what it is, but you're drawing us there, which is what I mean when I say like, I want to be able to put words to it. And that's what you just offered a, a an opportunity, one of them probably for this conversation. But it is the like, where does it land? Like, how does you're going to die? How does my work in the world land in the context of of the festival reality and specifically? And, you know, I've heard about the temple from a lot of people in the way you shared it, not just as an aside, usually as like, have you heard about the temple because of my work with death and dying and um, grief? And uh, I wish that I could just go I don't really want to go to Burning Man. I don't feel I need, I'm not compelled there, but what I would like to do is just get sort of helicoptered in to one so I could spend like a day and a night there and just be there for the temple mainly because of all the ways people have described it like you just did. And I, and I guess like very obviously, like you said, the immediacy is connected to the impermanence. And what I could even hear in that though, is that the festival has that too. Like you said, like Burning Man, it happens and then it's over. And it's like the best times in our life. They're rich and wonderful because they're fleeting and they're quick and festival life just, it seems like that's in, in it's woven into the experience. You're going to places to have the height of existence and adventure and connectedness and highs really and in all the ways and then it's just gone completely you know and and just the the rapidness or sort of the density of being alive in that way i feel like festival life just is inherently like that do do you agree with that absolutely yeah and and i think that festival life is like that and i think also you're like that like you personally are like that. Sure. Okay. I, I appreciate that. I do think that I'm drawn to You're Going to Die, Poetry, Prose, and Everything Goes, to the grief workshops, to going into the prison. I do feel like I'm drawn to these spaces and how I am in there because I feel that immediacy you, des- you described. I feel present in a way like I do right now, 
like with you being able to have this kind of conversation, how it has me here wholly and fully, I am seduced by that. And my whole life is not that way. I'm not that way in my whole life, but I am that way in these spaces with 99.9% consistency. I think you're right. There is a way that I am that, or I, I create that with the work that I do. And I'm frustrated when people don't drop in fully and show up vulnerably in those contexts because it feels urgent, you know? Well, before we've even fully introduced what you do in the world, the various things you do, you've hit the buzzer of this podcast. Because this is like, how do you make your life like a festival? Mm. Well, a huge part of that is to be fully present yeah. to your experience. And you're fully present to experiences that actually, as a culture, we pathologically shy away from. Mm. Therein lies the rub. And that's part of why you're going to die is such medicine. So you're going to die, poetry, prose, and anything goes. Everything. Everything goes. It's been a little while. Poetry, <laughs> okay, prose, feels, and everything goes. <laughs> it's like a play on words, right? So it feels like in that particular oh, everything word, everything. Go, oh, yeah. I never, oh, everything goes because you die. And it's, <laughs> you didn't go to one of the many open mics where I felt the need to like make that play explicit. on words very clear. Well, you clear, probably but. needed to make it very clear because I didn't <laughs> yes, get it good. at all. Okay, gosh, okay. thank goodness. Oh, well, now I've lost it. A I know. Bit. I'm sorry. No, no, I'm no, 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 no. I'm a professional. I can get it back. I can get it back. But what, what we're doing with with life as a festival is is teaching techniques for for presence. And I was just saying that people kind of pathologically won't look at at death and dying. Mm-hmm. And what you do at you're going to die, the very first thing that you do is you insist. And all of the people there, the congregation gathered to listen to art on the subject of death and mm-hmm. loss and grief, all must say a very provocative statement together. <laughs> do you want to do it? We better. Okay. I mean, we better. On the, on the count of three, one, two, three, I'm, I'm going, going to, to die. die. I'm going to die. Yeah, I haven't quite been able to stop that after all these years, even on the online open mics and for sure when we do our first live show at the end of the month. First live show is at the end of the month? Yeah, we're, we are. And, and I could announce this on your podcast. I don't know when this is coming out, but March 24th in the Lost Church Santa Rosa hmm. will be our first live show since the pandemic. And I can't imagine not sort of christening that again with that declaration, you know, that shared declaration. And I don't know why I never started. I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember why I ever felt like I needed to have everybody say it. I remember early versions of inviting people to. Like, I have been telling everybody all month long that they're going to die. So it's a way of me, like, giving that responsibility over so we all share it. I remember talking about it like that. But I, I absolutely have no recollection of the first time that I was like, this is definitely needed. And then just to do it every time, ever since, at every friggin' open mic, that's how we start it. Bringing that awareness of death is, I think, part of your gift. And I actually have something in your honor in my bathroom. Uh-huh. It was given to me by my Aunt Mariel, who died of pancreatic cancer two years ago. Mm-hmm. There are two things that are written in my bathroom. Mm-hmm. I will 
bring one to show you. <laughs> You're gonna get and it it's now. in my bath. Oh it's my in gosh. my bathroom so that everyone, when they use the bathroom, <laughs> yeah, totally. there's two things that they invariable invariably will read. Okay. There's two of them, and I'll show you both of them. And the first one is not about life and well, it might be about death. The first one is a beautiful cross stitch that says, "Please don't do coke in the bathroom." <laughs> Wait, so I'm sorry. So who? How did you get that? Did someone make that for you? I got it at a festival. Oh, that's amazing. The woman who made it is a disabled woman who is homebound, like mm. can't, is unable to leave her home. Mm-hmm. And she makes these hilarious cross stitches and then her friend sells them at festivals. Love it. And I thought this was so hilarious. It's got like a little bee and a flower and it says, please don't do <laughs> yeah. coke in the bathroom. Yeah, it's got the traditional look of a cross stitch yeah. and then the words are like, okay, Yeah, it's like a grandmother situation. <laughs> so that is one of the things in my bathroom. It could have to do with dying, well, maybe part yeah. of the point. And then this. And would you like to read mm-hmm. read what I insist that people have to read when they use my restaurant? Yeah, it's the title is Meditation on Dying. It is true to say that most of us dislike thinking about our own death. We spend most of our lives amassing possessions or embarking on an endless number of projects as though we were going to live forever, as though it was not absolutely certain that one day, tomorrow perhaps, or even in the next moment, we will leave everything behind. H.H. the 14th Dalai Lama. I think I got that Roman numeral right. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's awesome. She gave you that? She did. When did she give you that? Before her cancer diagnosis. Wow, and after, before? Before her cancer diagnosis, after you and I met. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's wild. That she, yeah, that she gave that to you before the diagnosis. Yeah. That's pretty special. What's your uh, aunt's name? Marielle. Say it again. Marielle. Marielle. Her chosen name. Mm. She was given the name Marjorie. Oh, wow. She she didn't uh, align with it. When did she, and you know, like, I know I'm starting to interview you, but it, it feels important to, you mentioned her a few times and it feels like what I think can you know happen in the open mic and in the workshops, especially some of the concerts and the bigger events, this kind of calling forth of our dead as part of a way to deepen how we're together with each other and that your aunt has been doing that since we got here, mm. you know? When, and for the listener, I created an ofrenda on the table and this was something that I was taught about by Claudia Oliver mm. on the podcast about Dia de Muertos. The ofrenda is an altar to those who have passed. Um, There's a candle burning. There is an urn with the ashes of my dearly beloved past cat, Ella, which also, moving through her passing, You're Going to Die was helpful. And I I delivered the poetry of speaking about her, nothing Mm -hmm. prepared, but the poetry of speaking about her and, and actually wept on the stage about Ella. And then there's also this photograph of my grandmother, my aunt, and my mother, my grandmother and aunt, both passing. Listen to this. On the same day, one year apart, Oh, wow. My mother's birthday. Oh, my goodness. Wow, that's wild. My grandmother died first, 99 years old. Her last words were, I feel like I'm flying away. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And there's a story, and maybe we'll have time on the podcast, maybe not, about how I taught her about ayahuasca before she died, Mm. which is a really special thing. I feel like you mentioned that with the... What's her name? Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear about that. And then... And then Marielle. Um, you don't just cry with breakups. You cry with Ella Lou. Did cry with Ella. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I remember 
the concert was at Noe Valley Ministry. Mm. I think it must have been probably Claudia's artwork. Was it the drawings of the hospice patients mm. or was it just music? Do you remember that show? Oh, you know what it was? Is it was Scott had an album release out. It, it was too. Scott's song. Yeah. Where he says, What peace. Oh yeah. This is oh man. <laughs> what is Scott's full name and his Scott music? Ferreter. And and it was Deep Pools, but Scott Ferreter now is is with uh Morgan Bolender in the Feelings Parade. Yeah. And worth mentioning because they are very integral to you're going to die's history and a and a huge part of what we do as an organization, but also are in the world with their music in that way. Like let's let's get real, let's get raw. But back then it was Scott Ferreter, and the album was See You in the Morning Light, and that was about him being with his father passing exactly. away. And he has the song What Peace, which makes and this was just makes me weep. Mm. This is the thing about this is he's so present with his emotions mm -hmm. and to witness that allows you to be present with your emotions. Right. And the lyrics are, he says, what peace when the worst possible thing is finally happening? Yeah. What peace when the final decision is already decided? What peace when the whole wide living world is busy dying? What peace to not have to care for such a precious thing? Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe you remember all those lyrics because they make me cry. What you describe him as is the like invitation to everyone to like open. Yeah. Yeah, that's what his music does. That album, that whole night was incredible, but I remember being on the corner with you and talking about Elalu. Yeah, yeah. I wrote an article on Medium about this. I wrote an article and put it on I Medium. Yeah. But I had the vet tech come to the house and you know, eight of my best friends there this beautiful moment and I wanted to hold her in my arms. Mm -hmm. I wanted so badly to hold her in my arms. Mm -hmm. And she was the kind of cat where like, she'd let you do it, but she didn't really like it. Yeah. And I would, I'd be like, this is how you pay rent. Like yeah. you let me hold you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Precious little After cat. all this yeah. time, yeah. But in this moment, I didn't want her to be in any distress in her mm. final moments. So I had acquiesced to the fact that she was going to be on the cushion. And she got the sedative and she got up walked a couple steps, kind of stumbled a little bit, looked around the room a bit bewildered, looked back at me and walked over and crawled into my arms. Mm -hmm. And then the vet tech says, are you ready? I was choosing to end the life of a being. And I had to be like, I am ready. I'm here. Yeah. And I was, I was a little worked up, but I remembered to breathe and remembered that this was about her experience. This yeah. is about this being's experience of, of leaving this earth. And I just calmed everything, got really peaceful with her and I let her go mm -hmm. and I helped her go. Yeah. And then my friends and I, we stayed up most of the night discussing what death meant to us. Mm -hmm. And it was this really beautiful ritual, this ceremony for the passing of a creature who slept in my bed every night for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would just say that you don't have to be ready. And I think that's part of why it mattered so much to be able to be. Mm. Like no one has, that's, that's part of the point, right? I think that like you're going to die exists in a way in the world because we don't have to. There's so many ways of distracting ourselves and numbing out and not getting ready, not being ready, not being ready now. Like it's so easy to not. And that you were conscious of that option and knew at least what would honor her and the time that you shared. Again, 
I'm, I'm acknowledging you because it's like you didn't have to do any of that. Mm. And we know because I wonder what the usual story is for more than half the pets in this country, you know? the many that I have growing up, like the stories I have of not getting that moment, not getting to have that with my many dogs and fish and hamsters and turtles, like lots of animals that there was no sacredness around that. And, and I don't blame my parents. You know, I've had fish die in our household since we've had kids. You know, it takes something to make room for that. It's not easy and especially with kids, but at all. And so I'm sort of acknowledging you for enacting that moment and having people support you and creating that, you know? Well, if anybody can do it, you say it's hard to make that space. If anybody can do it, it's you. And, and I will say that I, someone said this to me uh, a while ago, and I think it's such a beautiful way of thinking about it. The very nature of having a pet is part of teaching a child about death and letting go. Sure. It's a I, rehearsal. I think, I think it know? can be that. I agree. I think it's often not that though. In fact, I think it's often actually a way of maybe avoiding, uh, I have some theories about this. Tell me. I just think there's a way that in our, our culture, sometimes we use things to not have to be with heartbreak or grief. And, and I have specific versions of people in my life who are good examples of this. I think having a pet can create the opportunity for more connectedness and being present to like fragility. But I think sometimes we don't actually, I guess the way that I've seen it in the world, us not having that kind of relationship with a living being is in when a pet dies and we immediately replace that animal with another animal that there's a risk there of moving quickly past the grief. And so then I think the possibility of having the animal at all is a way to just be like, okay, let's just like fill, fill things with life and not actually like be present with loss or ways we're upset or grief stricken. And I have personal relations with people in my life who really represent that risk there. And it's just like anything. It's like all the things that we use in life to distract ourselves there's always an option to turn the stuff off and not actually face the reality. And I, again, not everybody treats these relationships in this way, but I, I do think there's a risk there. And so then again, I'm just saying that you really leaned in. You had that living being. I'm guessing you didn't get a cat right away. No, I'll tell you this. I don't get new girlfriends right away, man. <laughs> you have to I think grieve. it's important. You have to grieve. I understand too when people do get another dog because it's hard and you want that life maybe it is some version of healing having like a, especially pets like the therapy of it well and and this and this comes down to i think the whole essence of the conversation which is the oscillations of life the expansion and contraction and to live your life in a full and rich way in the way that i see you in our interactions living you really have to go all in on all of it and you have to be present with the reality of the situation over and over again. Mm. And that's what makes you able to really weep. Mm. And being able to really weep is what makes you able to really laugh. Mm -hmm. As you feel pain is yeah. the capacity for joy. Right. And especially in American culture, but we live this narrow bandwidth. You know, if you get some pain, you got to take a Tylenol. It's like, how do we yeah. turn off any kind of negative valence without the understanding that that's part of why we're so fucking numb? Yeah. 
I think you're right. Okay, so for people listening to a conversation like this, I think one of the obvious and immediate questions would be, how has death touched this man's life in such a way that he woke up to the need to be close to it? Yeah, because the story is sort of like, okay, that person died that really mattered to you. And so then I feel like your question is a little more of a, okay, that happens to a lot of us. It happens to all of us. <laughs> yeah, um, eventually. And although I do think there's something about losing, especially people in our lives that are, where our life comes from in some way, like family members and dear, dear friends, let's say. There's something about losing those people when you're younger. And that's a piece of this for me is that like my journey with you're going to die starts like early 20s, really how, how old, know, before that. How old were you? My mom died when I was 26, but she'd had cancer since I was 13. So I feel like there was a lot of me being sensitive and affected by this slow dying and including stretches where it was like not seemingly going to end in death, like she's fine and it'll be okay. But along many years of being around grief and the grief connected to cancer and treatment and loss of hair and and her being single. These are all like elements back then that it's like not just my mom dying. It's like my mom being depressed for most of my life while I lived with her and was raised by her and my dad's issues and his absence. And so all of these things are an alchemy in themselves for me, the starting point. But then the trajectory, let's say if there's a marker like my mom's death when I'm 26 years old through to being in San Francisco and starting an event that really didn't initially ask for anybody to talk overtly about grief or death and dying. That's really the very beginning open mic wasn't that invitation. It was just a place to show up and share because we're going to die. Like it was even called you're going to die before it was, we're going to talk about death and dying or my mom. And I think this is what that was for me. This compulsion to make room, it's a skill that I have, I think, in the world to make room for other people to express themselves and really open up. Not just share from their heart, but like share the song, share the poem. That's really the beginning. I was doing a podcast in 2000, uh, right when you could do Apple Podcasts. And it was a place where I would ask people to share their creativity. That was really what it was. And so this open mic that I started in 2009 that ended up being called You're Going to Die, even when it was called that was still that. It was like, just come on, let's get together and let's get it out. Let's share it. And then when it was called You're Going to Die, it was even a little more like you are playing a song. I remember saying this at one of the open mics. You are playing a song probably alone in your room. Let's just say you're a on the guitar and you're playing a song by yourself and you die tomorrow. And no one ever gets to hear you do that song and play that song and share that song. And that was this invitation in the early days of the open mic, like do it here. Like you're gonna die, like this is it now. Yeah. I would talk like this. And then I would, and I would often then, which I don't do much anymore, I would share my own poetry and my own writing. And my mom, I feel like was part of all that too. You know, it's like I was in LA and she died and really, 
part of what brought me to San Francisco was being in that loss and being like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, why am I here in LA working at this toy company selling cheap shit that's made in China to kids, like junk, crap toys to make money? And I really decided to move to San Francisco to go back to school. And because of that shift, because of my journey to San Francisco, that first open mic was, it was connected. It was like, I'm here to like be real and create the kind of spaces I want to create. And I'm getting my master's in English literature at state because I fucking was over doing the sales thing in LA. And so it was like, that was all wrapped up in there. But I think the, the significant event that occurred that really pushed you're going to die into why we're talking, because I really think if it stayed that, I wouldn't be doing this, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. When my mother-in-law died in 2012, it just brought up all of that grief from losing my mom, because I cared deeply about my mother-in-law. She was really important mother figure in my life, and losing her felt like the most unfair occurrence after having lost my mom and it was too much and I didn't have the right I don't think to go to get a my wife was going to grief bereavement groups and I just I think I didn't think I could do that because it wasn't my mom but all this shit was coming back up from losing my mom and then losing my mother-in-law really brought all that forth again. And I think the open mic just was waiting for me to show up there and do it there. And I, so I really, it's like, I know my mom's all like woven through it and such a significant part for no surprise as to why I'm in the world in this way. But my mother-in-law really losing her really, and even like her influence on me, I, I'd say, in those the years that I got to have her influence as a living being, she really encouraged me to, I think, even when she didn't say it explicitly, I felt the encouragement of like, this is the way through, you know, this is the thing to do. So then what happens when you say, oh, I need to do this here. I need to say my mother's name. I need to say my mother-in-law's name. I need to talk about their life and death, that realization. And then lo and behold, how many other people show up at that event and we're like, oh shit, like I need this too for countless reasons. My cat died or I don't remember the last event that like opened me up like that, how I felt so present or connected to community more alive than I felt when I walked through the doors. Like all those reasons suddenly are folded up and included in that experience. And so then just grown and grown and grown from there. I'd like two things. One, I would like to hear their names. Yeah. And then two, I'd like to know where you believe they are now. What is your metaphysical structure for what has happened to their consciousness? Thank you for asking. I've been saying, you know, my mom went by Chris Shuft, which was the last name was my dad's name. She never changed it. And she really didn't like her given name. So I want to say it's Chris Shuff, but I want to say her birth name because I feel like maybe my sense is very recently that she doesn't care anymore about how she hated her given name. Her birth name was Harriet Talbot Chapin and she would go by Hat. Her siblings would call her Hat. And my mother-in-law's name is Kathy Buskirk. And 
it's a good question about where they are because I'm not sure all the places they are, whether it's one or many, like definitively, I don't know. And I, and I want to articulate that because I think there's a way you're going to die is in the world and has been as an option for whatever the case may be for our dead, that when you show up at you're going to die, as much as it might have that church feeling, you're not then being told like they're in heaven. And I don't need to try to resist categorizing like where they are. It's just, I don't know. And I really mean to sit, answer your question in that way because I, I feel like I want to remind people in a way, you're going to die doesn't talk a lot. Like if someone's facilitating me, say am I hosting, I'm not like, let's talk about the afterlife. Because I actually do think my influence of that in my life has taught me that there's a risk in having something we're sure of afterwards. Maybe especially with in our culture, American culture, like heaven, mostly through the church, that that is a place to then put your grief to, right? What do you really need to grieve about if you have them waiting for you somewhere? Why do you really need to be present to the fact you're going to die if there's eternal life afterwards with Jesus Christ? And so I had that time of my life where I was had a relationship with Jesus, and I'll never regret it. I, I would do it all over again if I, if I had the chance. But also I was done and I transitioned from that. And so one of the things I learned is like, I don't know. I don't know where and I don't want to, especially in this kind of conversation, because I, I think it's important for us to be with that we're here and that we don't know. So then we could feel the real urgency of that we're going to die. I think having heaven waiting for us maybe l l takes a little bit of the urgency out. And all due respect to people that have those faiths. And really, I mean that, like I get it. I lived it. I was in that, but I've let that go. So I will say in answer to your question that definitively, I know my mom is here and that my mother-in-law is here. And, and I mean like with you and I right now, like I, I know that they're here. And I know that's in great part due to how we're talking, what we're talking about, that we're talking about them. And I would say they're not always, I'm not like I carry my mom with me wherever I go. You know, like I, there are ways I am in the world sometimes where I'm sure my mom doesn't want to be with me, you know? So I'm saying there's particular moments that I think have helped the continuation of my relationship with these two women. And this is one of those moments where I can tell you like, for sure the answer to the question is they're here right now, you know? Which is, which is to go back to what I said earlier, like when we go and we're at a concert, if you've ever been at one of You're Going to Die's big shows, you know this, but that sometimes we name our dead, you know? And that's not my idea. I learned that from my community, people that are in the world and who taught me the power of that. And people that I guess I could say are my community, but that have taught me it, like Patti Smith. I remember going to the Fillmore and seeing Patti Smith. And during the concert, she had us all call our dead, the names of our dead out. And she's listing off fucking Chris Farley and like just crazy list of famous people that were her friends. We know like she met and had relationships with, 
and a long list, of course, for as long as Patti Smith has been around. And meanwhile, people like me are out in the audience yelling my mom's name out loud, you know? And, and so enacting that moment, like m- taking action to have the relationship. And so then where are they? They're there. They're in those moments. And, and I learned that from people teaching me it. And so then when it fits, we've created that. Even in some of the online open mics, we've had moments where someone will play guitar and we just ask everybody who's on the call to like just say their say the names of their dead. And I I just want to say that I do feel that there's medicine in that. Again, nothing I'm saying I would say is an original thought. It's so taught by so many people. And this one is like a feel very Stephen Jenkinson influenced, who I highly recommend to to anyone listening, like to read his literature and check out his documentary and and videos online. But something I learned from him is that I in this culture, we look around so often and we don't see where our dead are. We don't hear people talking about them. We don't see them being named. When my mom died, I was at that memorial and then I left Redding, California and I went and I found a bereavement group and I could find her in that with other people. But when it was time to move on from that, because there was a time, that was it. I never was with community again like that after she died. I don't understand that. I don't understand why that happens in our culture. Accented by the fact that I created it myself. Like you're going to die is the place to every time my mom's there. My mother-in-law is there and we need those places in our life because right now in this culture, we're faced with disappearance, like definitively. And I, and I'll leave it at that. That's it. You got me. I got here. There are the tears. (laughs) You, you got the tears. It wasn't me, babe. (laughs) You got your own tears. You called, you called this. You called them forth. Yeah, I think, I think your mama called them forth. Okay. I think your, I think, think your mama's here. Yeah, for and sure she is. It's interesting. The tears are, are such a gift. My my mother is doing bereavement work, and she said in her grief group, they call tears getting lucky. Mm. <laughs> well, that's cool. They call it getting lucky. So is she in the group because she's grieving or she's is she grieving, helping yeah. facilitate? No, she's yeah. grieving. And my mother, my mother's so wonderful in that she's very open about me speaking about her mm-hmm. and so very comfortable speaking about her. But yep. her sister, Nori, died when she was 19. Okay, there's a third sister. There's a third sister. and Nori. Nori, yeah. And Nori has been with my mom. She talks to Nori. My mother oh, talks okay. to Nori. Yeah. But the experience of Nori dying was also a kind of numbness for Sheila. And she has spent most of her life and almost all of my life taking a nap when things get painful. I do that. Yeah, yeah. Her, big, her big thing is to take a nap. And death has been an extraordinary gift for her recently. As mm-hmm. I mentioned, Elspeth Bobbs, my grandmother, and Marielle Johnson, my, my aunt, died recently mm-hmm. a year apart. And it's been a shamanic experience for my mother mm-hmm. in many ways because she has to grieve now. Mm-hmm. There's no hiding. Mm-hmm. And it's shifting what she wants. And she actually, a couple months ago said, we're talking on the phone and she said, I'd like to do ayahuasca. <laughs> okay, yeah. She's 72 years old and totally. she wants to do ayahuasca, mm-hmm. which means she you know, needs to be off of her antidepressants mm-hmm. and you have to go she totally wants clean. to feel. Yeah. Did she say why they say it's lucky? 
I mean, I kind of understand why sure, it I mean, would be, but I don't I, think. I just yeah. wonder. Yeah, I wonder if they articulate it at all, or yeah, you know, explain why. But that's the, I love that. I'm going to use that. Yeah, getting lucky. Okay. Getting, of course, getting getting lucky. In that, what a beautiful thing to be alive and to be so moved mm-hmm. that we flow. Tears are flow, and mm-hmm. so many of us are stuck. So many of us are numb. So many of us are full of fear. And the fear of death is a deep fear that innervates all other fears, mm-hmm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. And yet, life like a festival, a life full of real joy and real celebration, requires a wide range of human experience and emotion. I envy how close to grief you are mm. and how it flows for you. Because for me, things tend to get more stagnant before the dam bursts. Yeah. And I don't want that. When I watched UMC, I was both impressed and proud to be present. The container that you set up for You're Going to Die is extraordinary. But if you're not emceeing it, it's not the same event. Uh, I went to a You're Going to Die that you weren't able to emcee. It was the first one that oh, you right, weren't yeah. able to go we, to. We like texted about it or yeah. something. Yeah. And the woman who took your place Chelsea, was an excellent emcee. Mm-hmm. However, she didn't have your tears mm-hmm. to lubricate the room in the way. Yeah, like she, someone. She, yeah, she'd admit that, and we talk about it. And, and she's, she's, by the way, Chelsea's the CFO, and many, many wonderful things, including one of my dear friends. And we we have had very open conversations about all of this. What does it look like to have you're going to die be an occurrence and not have me at the helm and what does it mean when it's not that, you know, and how is it worthwhile? And I don't mean like, is it? I mean, like, how is it? Like, how could she, how did she, you know? Um, so sorry to cut you off. Yeah. No, no, that's very helpful context. And I, I, I love just bringing people in and, yeah, and, totally. and having them named. Is so, She's an important I mean, one that's part sure. of, I mean, that's part of the lesson even that when we're talking about naming people who've mm-hmm. died is like, let's name people, let's yeah. bring people in You're right. when they're alive, you know, when things are happening. Yeah. Yeah, just your facilitation of those spaces your willingness to be so close to grief where a poem from someone you've never met before moves you to tears in the way that like an MC will get up on stage and be like, let's give it up for this person. You can really give it up for this person. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, give everything up. Yeah, I've, I appreciate that. And yeah, it's, it's, real, it's for sure a real like old part of you're going to die and also how I'm in the world. I've always cried a lot and I think... I joke that maybe, you know, I just threw a lot of tantrums when I was younger to get attention because everybody was depressed and angry. So to get what I wanted and to get that, like maybe love, uh, whatever it was that, that I felt I needed at the time, if I knew, crying was a really big deal, like having that tool back then. And I feel like it's translated through the rest of my life. And so you know, the earliest you're going to die, I feel like has got that emotional charge. Probably even before I was like, this is a grief space, you know? It's a spirit thing for me that I want to be careful to describe, but there there is a feeling of something like something else at the wheel in those contexts, the open mic especially, where I feel very led by something beyond me and so then the next day there is maybe less than ever now, but this like, whoa, 
like that that had to have been really intense for a lot of people like shame and guilt you know like that was probably too much as after years of doing what you describe but then also i think part of why i know it's maybe there's less shame and and those feelings than ever maybe a more assuredness is that i'm more clear than ever that the need for that lubrication and that in our culture we need criers because we're not crying enough and especially i think men for especially sure especially men for sure. i was in a men's retreat where i can't remember where this came from it's it came from a lineage this expression but that women give their blood to the earth and men give their tears mm. and that there's a way in which we we are paying to the earth mm. women with blood and men with tears mm-hmm. and wow i love that, that and that's another thing with you too is like your masculinity mm-hmm. is an interesting part of you're going to die has that ever come up has anyone sure. ever yeah. brought that up yeah definitely i i think the way i would describe it after what you're acknowledging and and yes all the times people have brought it up, there is this something about a big six foot three guy, broad shouldered, big and big physical voice. presence, big deep voice. voice, big voice, energy, performative, you know, like all that, like I'm filling the space vibe, coupled with that kind of sudden emotional vulnerability and, and tears and getting real, but especially the, the emotion. There, you're right. There is a dynamic there that's created that is off-putting in a good way, maybe for most people. Also, I'm sure a, a little too much for some people. You know, after all these years, it'd just be so easy to be like, "You're going to die" is just the best thing in the world. You know, and I know you're not saying that, but I'm just saying the inclination to be like, "It's just perfect. It's so dialed." But that there is a way someone could show up in that space and be like, "This is too much." For example, like I don't need a white guy leading this space and asking me to be vulnerable. And that's just one version of the many, like it's not for everybody. I imagine there's people that have been in that space and seen me get up on stage and get vulnerable like that and needed to leave. But I do think you're gonna die is built on me being that invitation. Like this is what's possible here. And I don't mind articulating this this way repeatedly because I do think, especially with the open mics, but now the grief workshops that we do and maybe the concerts and events, although that's a little more like sit back and let's feel it, but also just be together and watch. Um, but like the grief workshops and the our prison program and the open mic is this, I'll get up and probably joke around a bit, but you know, that opening monologue and then get real and cry. And so then I'm opening a door that someone else who's signed up is gonna go through next. And when they're in that next deepening, they'll open a door for us. And so then we all will go through that door and then the next person will open a door. And that the whole night, like I would imagine you've experienced, I know you have, but hopefully what I'm describing, you're like, yeah, that's what it's like. But that that's part of what happens in the evening, right? Accented by people being honest and raw, sharing their hearts, like the thing they carry all the time that they maybe don't tell most anybody in a day, the tears, 
and the laughter and the joy, but like this deepening of connectivity and aliveness happening like real time together with a community. There's nothing like it in my life other than maybe church, you know, which has certainly been an influence on, I think what you're going to die is in the world. Like taking all the best parts of what church was and be like this, I still want this. Yeah, it does feel like a congregation, like we come together mm-hmm. to feel, which I think at, at its best as, a, as someone who comes from a agnostic background, I think that that community cathartic connection is, is a huge part of it. Yeah. And I'll just add that, yeah, recently I, I just sent an email out like yesterday for You're Going to Die and the title just popped into my head because one of the participants in the grief workshop we did last month said it, that there's nothing quite like it the grief workshop especially is like 12 people meeting every week, four sessions in a month, like the open mic, but really, really intimate, really dense, really focused listening space, far less performative, more like we're going to open, but there's writing and there's music too. And them saying like, there's nothing like this. I don't know where this has ever existed. And I really feel that that's a little what you're going to die off. I'm not saying it's not out there in other ways, but you're going to die has been that for me, this thing that I couldn't find anywhere else. I know I said that already, but. And I think there's something about that communal healing. There's a specific kind of medicine. So you mentioned the prison project, Mm -hmm. Alive Inside. Yeah. And something that I've wondered about that experience for you First of all, I've always been especially inspired by that project and it's great to be able to talk about it on the show. So yeah, I'd thanks. love for you to uh, explain a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. But the question here is, you talk about this vulnerability, this presentation of grief. And I've always wondered, is that a different experience walking into a prison and then holding that vulnerability and giving the invitation for that grief and that vulnerability from a prison population? Mm-hmm. I have never been in a prison. I've been in jail, but I've never been in a prison. That's a different, <laughs> it's a different podcast. But I've never been in a prison. Did you do a grief workshop while you were in jail? No, 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 no. I just, I just quivered and called my mom crying from a payphone. <laughs> That's yeah, so good to just, leave it at that. Yeah, just quivered. I was 19 and I was just, ugh. You did your own grief I exercise. Did, yeah, exactly. There. I did my, my little pity party. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've uh, never been to a prison, but mm-hmm. my assumption would be that it would be a more challenging space to be vulnerable in. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for bringing it up. It's definitely a program that's near and dear to my heart. And like the pandemic has done for so many things in far more devastating ways than this, it's been really hard. It was really, really hard to not be able to go into San Quentin. At the beginning of 2020, we'd set up finally, officially, a year long of open mics. Um, our program is called Alive Inside. And it is, you're going to die poetry, prose, and everything goes. But for obvious reasons, we uh, needed to change the title to Alive Inside. And it's not, I would say it's almost hard not to be vulnerable and emotional for me in that context. I'd say it's harder to not be. Like you said, is it harder just to make sure I got your question right? You're like, it seems like it might be harder to get vulnerable into that particular space. Or that there might be more fear Mm -hmm. in the vulnerability. Yeah. I guess in a way, I have the privilege and luxury of being, you know, a pretty tall, big white guy. Like you said, sort of that 
that presence of not that I feel like particularly masculine, but that I maybe could show up and have that confidence just built into my my body. But also I think I'm just not inclined towards feigning that kind of presence, you know, like I'm powerful and protected. Like I would say even any fear and anxiety in a space like that, which I don't really relate to actually, I couldn't even like hold it. The only way through would be for me to just be real and get vulnerable and try to connect through that. That might be another line of conversation, just sort of how does that have me in the world when I'm with other people and think the way to diffuse this situation or the way for me to like be seen is by being like as real as possible and really showing up vulnerably and offering that. That, that is my strategy for, sure. for conflict. Yeah. It's like make it as real as possible and just let someone come into shared vulnerability right. with you yeah. because a lot of times if people have that invitation, they want to let down their arms. Yeah. The, you know, this community, they're just the, the best community at calling bullshit. And so I think what has really so then helped us show up in that context regularly is that I'm not a bullshitter. You know, in fact, probably one of my weaknesses is that I can't fake it. And uh, there's a lot of ways in the world we don't need to get into right now where I, I wish I was able to, but I'm not going to pretend like I want to talk to you. I'm not going to pretend like I want to listen to you. Like the eagerness I have being with you right now, I don't just do that with everybody. There's places in the world where I'm just turn it off because I don't fucking feel like it and I'm not comfortable or whatever. And when I go into that space and the story matters because it really answers the question kind of. The story is that someone came to You're Going to Die Poetry Pros and Everything Goes in San Francisco, and they asked me to come in and talk to a community in there called the Brothers Keepers. They're a community who does uh, suicide prevention. They're people who show up for their own community and help facilitate and take care of these people who are having these tendencies. Like you might imagine in prison, there's a real risk with going to someone in charge with that information. If you were to go tell someone like your correctional officer or someone else, like you could have that information put on your parole record. You know, it's just, I won't go into all the politics and all that stuff really. We all, I think probably listening, have some sense for some of the broken parts of, of the prison system. But Brothers Keepers was created to like have a safe place, safe community who could be with people who are going through those kind of things. And so I was asked to go in and give a talk to them and two things happened when that when I was asked that. One was I for sure absolutely said yes, like right away, because it just felt like one of those moments that actually you're going to die in the history of it feels peppered with, which is like, yes, I don't know what's on the other side of the yes, but for sure I, I know that's the next thing to go forth into the next doorway. And so I said, yes, that was the first thing that happened. And the second thing that happened was like, what the fuck do I have to say to these guys? Like what in the world possibly could be worth their time? And so that first chance I got to go into San Quentin to talk ended up being the open mic. I just knew I needed to go in and I didn't have anything to say to them. I needed to listen. And, and I talked a little and I got emotional but it was like, you know what I did. You've seen me do it. I just walked in there and pretty much said probably some version of what I just said, which is like, I got asked to come in here and give a talk to you guys. I can't imagine what would be worth your time. So what I want to do is hear from you. So let's do it. And then I just two and a half hours got to listen to these guys share from their hearts and they're good at it. 
the community I've been able to hold space for in that way. They're people that are more alive than most anyone I meet on the outside because of what they've lived through and needed to heal from. This prison that we find ourselves in, like actual prison and the things that led to them being there may be what helped them find more aliveness and healing and medicine and connectivity than anything else. And so that first event was life-changing. This program is more important to me than almost anything that we do. You know, it all is really important to me, but going in there is life-changing. I hope that I can bring a fraction of what I get from going inside. And, you know, it's very delicate to talk about because I feel privileged and I feel affected and changed, but also these are human beings that have been placed in, I think, a mostly broken system as a result of a country and a culture, uh, a bigger system that I reap the benefits of. And talking to Ani DeFranco in one of our recent episodes, she really, she, as she says it in her book, but it's this idea that like, people have been placed at the edge where they could fall into these contexts. It's like, that's how life is set up. People that are non-white male cis, like I am, people that our system has like put in a place where they're the ones likely to be put in San Quentin or Marion Correctional in Ohio, which is also a prison that we've got to go inside. So, all that is to say I'm talking about the delicacy around it because I feel like I get so much out of it. And it's, again, like an extension of a system that I continually reap the benefits of. So I'm just wanting to acknowledge that, that it's complicated. But I do hope that I offer them something when I'm in there. And I think one of the things that I offer is a very obvious, real place to be heard. And I think it's my responsibility to do that. And that that's part of what the history of our country deserves is more people listening to these underserved, repressed, I mean, destroyed in ways from families, communities, these people, it feels like I, I have to listen. You know, and so in a way, it really connects to the open mic. All the open mics on the outside, you're going to die in general, has been like the practice of listening. And like I said before we started recording, it is a conversation, but it's slow going and it's a whole lot of listening mainly. We're not talking about like, here's feedback or here's the fix or here's the answer to what you've shared. It's just this endless like receiving, receiving, witnessing and the connectivity that maybe can come from that and maybe the healing from being seen. And that it's almost easier to do in there because of how much I think we are responsible to do it and for how much of the grief it is that, that they hold and have lived through. And you can only imagine but let's just say, for example, the last two years, what it was like to finally go in a couple months ago and be with these guys who'd lost members of their community because of the way the pandemic was held at San Quentin. I mean, you just look it up if you want to find out about it. It's like these stories of what was going on in these two years. It's like 
what we've all lived through, but times 100. People that have been incarcerated, maybe temporarily for something that they did or not, and living in high-level confinement, like separation, you know, so they're almost like serving a sentence times 10. And I do mean like, maybe they did something, maybe they didn't. Like we're responsible all across the board, I think, but also we're doing grief space with people that have been exonerated from the prison system. And that's been something we've been lucky enough to do during the pandemic, which is being with people out of the Ohio Innocence Project who have served time and shouldn't have and have been freed and maybe aren't exonerated yet, but like we are getting to be with them every month and have these grief spaces where we listen and there's music and there's poetry and mainly a lot of sharing, you know? And again, you can only imagine what comes up in those spaces. So I've been thinking a lot about prisons lately and it's one of the things that I really admire about your work too is this Alive Inside project. And, you know, I'd like to go sometime. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Good. And I'd love to bring I'd love to bring everybody, but yeah. I d- definitely hear you and would love to share that space with you. And I think as the program evolves, I wonder how much more possible and proven by the need, I think, how much more possible it would be to have community regularly show up. Right now, it's like all we go into Alive Inside and I would be the host and then we'd bring two or three musicians in and do like, again, what you've experienced on the outside. But I think there's tremendous value possible in like the listening of community in these contexts, as many as possible. Well, one of the things that I do from time to time on this podcast is I make on the spot commitments. Great. Where like while we're in the middle of an interview, if my heart feels moved, (laughs) I'll say yes. On the record. (laughs) On the record. Yes, I'll go do the wilderness first responder training. Cool. In in this case. I've thought about it a lot and and it scares me to be in that space and be confronted. You know, being confronted with the absolute human rights violation of mass incarceration in this country it's similar to facing something like death. You must face it. It's important that it is faced and there's a transformative quality in facing it. Yeah. You earn more of life by facing the things you want to turn away from. Yeah, yeah. it's so, it's so wild because I do think it, it deserves acknowledging a little more the complexity of it because there is this feeling that what you're saying is true and gosh, it's just... It's so hard to speak to how valuable it is to go in there, but I think it's good to, to frame it the way you are, which is, it's something to confront. It's a place to show up. And I think like, that's it. I'm, I'm just like, I wish I could say, people, here is the fucking awesome thing about me that gave me this thing. Like, this is how I got in there. And truly it just feels like this unfolding that I had to just keep saying yes to. And I'm just feel so lucky that I, I'm able to for the ways you're framing it, you know? It's like, I'm, I'm trying to say like, God, I don't know. I don't, it's like, I don't even feel like I deserve to be with these guys, you know, and some women, but I am. And it's like any chance I get, if there's a, a opportunity to go in there, it's a yes. That's how I feel about it. And I don't even know why. I can't say that I'm like, because restorative justice, here's the ways I think restorative justice, and this is why I think Alive Inside is gonna help with like, I don't know about all that. I'm not even smart enough to. I just know like that's the place I want to be. I want to listen there. I feel as much about it as you said. It's like I'm really like this program. I really want to make sure to talk about that. I feel that way about it. It's like I just can't imagine 
not being able to do it. And I'm so grateful that we're able to. But boy, yeah, it's so complicated and I have so much to learn. But how am I going to learn? By going in for sure and listening, definitely. So I'm just doing that. And really, you're going to die started like that. You know, like back when I described to you the beginning days, I'd get up and read poetry and I'd perform. I did songs sometimes with my buddy, Stephen. But really those many years up until I would say maybe when you showed up there, really around then I feel like I started to get what it meant to facilitate the space, like what my job was there. Before that, it was just listening. Like how often do we get a chance to get people together like that and like hear the things we've got on our shoulders or in our heart. And so the prison program, similarly, it's just before anything else, this is built into a lot of the spaces, especially the grief workshops lately. Before anything else, the listening is what's needed. And I don't really know much past that. You don't need to. <laughs> no, Apparently not. Right now, I mean, you've structured it in such a way where the listening is foundational mm, and, yeah. and creating a sacred space where everything is heightened, mm-hmm. where that listening yeah, can, can really happen. Yeah. That reminds me of this quote from Jeff Foster that is one of my favorite quotes mm. about death and loss. I feel like someone has probably shared this with you. Yeah, before. I'm wondering, did you share it recently? Yeah, or yeah, on, no, did you share it on social media? I've, or anything? I've, I've, shared, I've shared it before, yeah. Let me, sh- let me, yeah, I want to hear it. Yeah, it really comes back to the thread of the whole conversation, which is the enlivening power of loss and the awareness of loss mm. in its fullness. Mm-hmm. Actually, before this quote, I want to I want to call in a Ram Das thing because it's really relevant too. Bring it Just all. bring them all in, Baba Ram Das. Ram Das has a great bit about learning about loss and learning to grieve. And what he says, which is so important to be attentive to, particularly as a young person, is that you have to learn to grieve because the journey of life leads to more and more loss. The older you get, the more loss you accrue. And so you better train yourself to grieve. You better find a sacred space to grieve. You better weave grief into your life because it's coming and it builds. And as my grandmother used to say, is getting old isn't for sissies. <laughs> <laughs> I love the slew of such good quotes that you're throwing out right now. I've got one more that you're going to get at the end of but all this. Real quick, I, have, I have a I'm great re- quote that you're getting at the end, by the so way. So real quick, I want to just say something before you read Jeff Foster's poem. I love a couple things. Ram Dass, for sure. I recommend Walking, uh, walking Each Other Home. Yeah, It's like the book that got released after he died, but but also lots of Ram Dass. I feel like there's a documentary too that's pretty short that's so, so be, much being of just nobody, death and grief. Yeah, yeah exactly. Being nobody's that one. Or becoming so, nobody, rather. Yeah, that sounds right. And then this, what you're about to read, I feel like I'd, re- I'd heard it years ago and maybe from you, but people send me stuff a lot. And of course I'm reading a lot on death and dying. That's my learning. I don't want to go to school and become a hospice nurse or a doctor or palliative care, you know, a therapist. Like I just do the learning on my own and I'm really drawn to literature and certainly creative output songs and poetry. So I'm sure that's why I knew this poem already. But very recently, someone who was at the show you were at, Shelly Diamond. I'll try to keep it short, but she came to that show that you were in the same space. So this is good. I'm sort of realizing that connection. At that show, the ghost ship fire had happened in Oakland. Oh yeah. That and, was right uh, after we had a little ship. open mic to start. Yeah. And I remember reading a quote 
There's so many quotes in this stretch of the, the interview, but I, I'm reading this quote. It's a piece by Greg Kimura called Cargo. I read it to start the open mic. And it's about gifts, like using your gifts, finding your gifts and giving them away in the world, Cargo. He wrote it for Maladoma Patrice May, who is it another recently passed away. He recently died. He recently died. And so I recommend Of Water and the Spirit. This is that stretch where you just write all this down, everybody. It'll all be in the show notes. That's <laughs> yeah, how this okay, works. Good. You don't have to I'll write it down. It, just, just click on 45 whatever. 45 links. Yeah, go to, go to humanarmstrong.com. Yeah, stay present. Close your eyes unless you're driving. And she came up to me afterwards and she said, I know Greg. I know the poet. She knew him. And she was like, he's dying right now from a brain tumor. I emailed him and got to write a note to him, which was powerful, and he replied, and I just had that, and then he died, this guy. So now jump two years later, just months ago, Shelly's reaches out, and she's dying. She's dying now. She's dying right now, and like she's dying so much right now that she could have died already. I haven't heard from her. She sent me this email to let me know, and not long after she sent me the email letting me know that she's dying, she sent me this poem. So mm. that's why I know what it is. Oh, Shelly Diamond. Well, then this is for you, Shelly Diamond, whether you are with us or whether you are with us. <sighs> you will lose everything. Your money, your power, your fame, your success, perhaps even your memories. Your looks will go, loved ones will die. Your body will fall apart. Everything that seems permanent is impermanent and will be smashed. Experience will gradually, or not so gradually, strip away everything that it can strip away. Waking up means facing this reality with open eyes and no longer turning away. But right now, we stand on sacred, holy ground. For that which will be lost has not yet been lost. And realizing this is the key to unspeakable joy Whoever or whatever is in your life right now has not yet been taken away from you. This may sound trivial, obvious, like nothing, but really it is the key to everything, the why and how and wherefore of existence. Impermanence has already rendered everything and everyone around you so deeply holy and significant and worthy of your heartbreaking gratitude. Loss has already transfigured your life into an altar. Thanks for reading that. I have one more quote I want to <laughs> add to this string of quotes. And it's, it's our last quote. No, I have and one too. It, and it, okay, it's our second to last quote. And it runs in contrast. It's the opposite idea of this idea, in a way, around meaning and impermanence. Mm. And this quote is saying, because that which will be taken away has not been taken away, your life is an altar. And then this quote is about the liberating meaninglessness of it all, mm. in a way. The liberation of being able to choose your life based on the <laughs> I fact, know, I know what this quote based on the fact that it doesn't matter. I know exactly. Do you know? What you know this quote? Because uh-huh. it's from you. I know. I just knew it. You I just knew, knew it? it. Yeah, I knew it. <laughs> Ned, this is a quote from you. 
It's one of my favorite things that you say during You're Going to Die, yeah. which is in 4,000 years, you are exactly the same as Beyonce. Totally. <laughs> you are exactly the same as Beyonce. Exactly. So why don't you live? Exactly. Why don't you live your life? Because yeah. in 4,000 years, you and Beyonce are the same, which to me, it's hilarious. Were you and- there that night when I said that? Because I don't say it a lot. But do you remember being at the show? 100%. When, yeah, Oh, totally. absolutely. Yeah, that was Vera Coach's I, deep yeah, cut. I, I thought you said it more frequently. I might have referenced it before, but there's a video online of me saying it to Vera Coach, and I'm sure that was the show you were okay, at. Okay, yeah. No, and, I was there. Uh, and I'll, I'll send that to you too, because it might be fun for you to take the audio out and share it, because yeah. it's, it's the whole emotional like monologue about it, right? Well, send it to me, and I'll, okay. I'll, I'll pull the Not I'll pull that the you audio. haven't heard me yep. monologue Actually, enough you know today, what? but... You know what? If Ned ends up sending me it... You I will, will, I will. If Ned sends it, you will hear it right now. One of the things that this guy tripped on and, and spoke to, and he would talk in these ways that you would be like, what the hell did you just say? And then it would like settle into your bones like truth beyond the words. Something like he's like, I'm talking about something that's bigger than words get to, and I'm talking well enough that I'm speaking to that thing, and you'll get there in a little bit. Like just hold on. And then you just would get the truth, you know? That like there is nothing in this life you cannot have fully unless you get that you don't get to have it eventually. You cannot enjoy a flower without accepting its end. You know, like there is no that is not in the equation. And you know what? You can, you know what? You cannot just accept it. He would say, you cannot just accept it. You have to love that it's going to die. You have to love that you picked this person in your life that you love so much knowing that you're going to lose them. Like, that's life. And if you don't do it that way, you don't get all of them. You just fucking don't. Like, you cannot have this whole moment if you cannot choose that it's going to stop, you know? You have to choose all of that. And in that is, like, this life you have that doesn't require you to fucking end up somewhere with, like, a lot of money. Or like a family that feels well taken care of and we're all cool because I got that job that I work f- fucking 60 hours a week, you know? Like, but it's cool, it's success, you know? Or I'm famous and I got a movie out there that in a thousand years no one's gonna watch. But like Beyonce and you are the same in 4,000 years. <laughs> you know, like, what are you chasing after? What are you fucking tapping into? Like, what? else is there but like being this in this you know I don't do it very well you know like I'm yelling at myself I'm yelling at myself I'm crying because it's me that I'm talking to you know but I'm but I but you're listening to me yelling so you just gotta take it on yeah all right anyway and we're back. Cut. Wow. How'd it go, everybody? So many quotes. Old school, old school. Yeah, that's the end of the quote segment. The well, meaningless no, no, thing, I feel that. I do have a quote, but I'll, I'll save it to the very end. The very end. I want to say that what you're n- noting, first of all, it's so good to laugh with you. And I'm just, I, I want to laugh more. And I think in these conversations, there's just the inclination, like with the podcast, you're going to die the podcast. You know, it's intense. Go listen to Smartless or Dak Shepard or something. You know, it's like- Mama's House. (laughs) Yeah, right. These other shows that are, they're great, but they're just lighter. (laughs) And 
what I'm feeling grateful for and kind of want to declare like my own commitment is to do more laughing in these contexts, you know, especially on the record. Cause I want, I want people to get like a, a couple things ego wise. I want people to get that I'm funny and I'm entertaining. And just for the purposes of what we've been talking about, I want people to get like you describe, which is the joy is on the other side of the grief, you know, that in this episode, there's crying and there's you and I laughing together and like us fully being here together, like getting each other, getting and giving to each other ourselves. Like that's what I'm having today with you. And that laughter is a part of that, you know, like being funny and humorous and enjoying and teasing and making fun. Like I, I'm just committing to more of what you've let me have today in other interviews and other ways that I'm in the world more often. So thank you. Well, that gives me a lovely segue into something else I want to talk about, but I get the sense that you might not have been finished. Oh yeah, the meaningless thing. <laughs> Thank you. Nice right. one. Little meaningless. We don't have to talk this much at all. Little, about little, this, little, little meaningless bit. And that, yeah, let's tell me, <laughs> yeah, tell me about the great fucking Beyonce quote because the meaninglessness does create space for meaning if it doesn't turn into a sort of like pessimistic nihilism. Yeah, right. I think there's the possibility of that. And by the way, like I can do that. Uh, I just want to say that I have these ways I'm in the world that if any, maybe people have picked up on that already. It's not just like I can be gr with grief and I'm sad and that's depressing or whatever. There's also like anger and there's also like nihilism and hopelessness and meaninglessness in negative ways. And, you know, deserved like because of the facts of life, that it's hard and that it isn't all great. And that I hear stories regularly and I'm sat with people where it's so fucked up being alive. And I do think I'm lucky and privileged enough to have a lot of room to not feel like that. But I also think I'm someone who gets it and grew up with a little bit of it and should know it. It's like you said, going into the prison is confronting these parts of life. Like we do not all have life as a festival. Like it's just not that way. And we also don't all have a nonprofit built on your mother's death, you know? And so then like, I get to do everything that I've always hoped and dreamed I could do. So it just to acknowledge there for sure is a way I do understand the part of life in some ways that's broken and makes no sense in the most devastating of ways. We're, we're living in it. So I think it's important you're going to die and me as a representative, you're going to die really makes room for that stuff too. And you know that the space has room for that, but I just want to say that now. And privilege, luxury, luck to be someone in the world. Another thing I didn't like, it didn't originate for me, of course, but this idea that there is relief in the meaninglessness and the way that I feel like I was taught it or got it most clearly was actually through another sort of church-like, programmy-like occurrence. I did Landmark Forum when I first came to oh, San Francisco. Oh, I didn't know you did Landmark. Yeah, early early San Francisco for me, like 2007, 8, 9, somewhere around there. Like church, I did it and it was good for me and I was done with it and moved on. But one of the things that I feel like really got accented in that context was hopelessness and meaninglessness and the power of that empty space, you know? what it means to be relieved there and create from that space, be fully there. And so I think you're going to die has the influence of that. And I think the Beyonce quote is a way of really driving it home. It's like, 
God, we deserve to just let it fucking go. Like we don't have to be that either, right? We don't have to strive, especially these days, get back to the phone and the likes and the how we exist in the world with the attention we get, the podcasts we create. You know, there's just that risk. We're driven constantly and I have it. And so from that landmark sort of teaching, but also my own death waiting for me, the relief that death that waits. And I mean, literally, if I'm lucky enough just to be on a deathbed, it seems to be where I place myself, but like I can go and visit him and I feel the influence of that final moment. I can feel it as I'm talking to you right now, that it's just all doesn't matter, you know, like it's okay, let it go. That was our buddy, our our CEO, Ned Buskirk, founder of You're Going to Die, in conversation with Eamon Armstrong from the podcast Life is a Festival. And you can find that entire episode at his website, eamonarmstrong.com, E-A-M-O-N armstrong.com. That's all we got for this week. Come to a live event now that they exist in the world. Come to a workshop online. Uh, find us in the streets, (laughs) track us down, wave at us, give us an orange. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for spending, uh, what does Ned say? Uh, Thanks for hanging out in our ears, in your ears. Thanks for us being in your ears. Okay, bye. Bye.